cliffcentral.com. All right, it is Tuesday morning. We are well into February and we are only a few months away from our elections. It's one of the things that we are most, I think, interested in in South Africa is what could happen as a result of the way the elections go. Um, lots of people suddenly very animated about what uh, our future may deliver, and it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And one of the books that's been written about this is something that I thought it would be worth paying attention to today. Not only because the the two men, three men actually, who wrote the book, Ray Hartley, Greg Mills, and Mills Soko, uh, have done so much excellent work around this, but also because we need to take in as much information as we can ahead of whenever this happens, May June. Hopefully June, whenever the president <laughs> yeah. eventually decides to get off his backside and announce the election. Because mm. even the IEC is sitting there going, come on, dude, we need a date. Like, And I don't know why he's delaying, but anyway, we, we, anyone can speculate what that might be all about. All about. Mm. But uh, Greg and Ray are on the show with us this morning. It's a great pleasure to have Ray Hartley in the studio. Ray, it's been such a long time since I last saw you. It's nice to have you here. Great to be yeah, very, very good. Yeah. And uh, I hope that... Uh, uh, Greg's on the line. Let's just check. Greg, hi, hi, Greg. How are you? Good morning to you. Good stuff. All right. So, congrats on the book, guys. Uh, there's plenty of material at the moment uh, for us to pay attention to. The politicians are uh, putting their feet in their mouths at regular uh, uh, r- rates and 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 in regular ways. Uh, I also see that there are lots and lots of surveys being done. That people doing research all over the place, asking small and large groups of people what they think, what they're going to do. Everyone is trying to predict behavior. But what I appreciate about your book is that you've really just given us three potential outcomes here. And people like these things simplified because unfortunately or fortunately, whatever it is, it is, humans just like a simple solution Mm. uh, to complex situations. And they want to understand things in a binary fashion, is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? Luckily, you added the ugly scenario as well, just to frighten the hell out of us. Um, so tell me how the book came about and also why you guys decided to uh, to put it in this sense, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, well... Uh, I like to have a first crack at that. I'm, I'm sure that Dre will uh, talk more about the scenarios. But I saw a great article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday uh-huh. which uh, summarized for me many of the sentiments behind why we wrote this book. It was, a, it was an article about Trump and his effect on democracy in the United States. And it said, and you know, in, in terms of the, the sometimes visceral reaction that people have towards Trump, and it said that you shouldn't sort of dismiss Trump or, or see him as a threat to democracy. He's the embodiment of democracy. The fact that you have this choice that he that he it, it allows for people like Trump to have their moment is actually what democracy is all about. And part of that is about this power of choice. And you spoke about that earlier, Gareth, in terms of actually empowering individuals to make that choice. And one of the trends in our democracy, particularly over the last 20 years, has been the declining uh, uh, voter participation. Mm-hmm. You know, m- more than one third of South Africans now don't vote, they choose not to vote. And what this book was about was to strengthen the cause of choice, to strengthen participation in our democratic system. And what it really does is to try and inform voters about the choice, uh, to make them participants in our political process. Because until now, there's another trend in South Africa, which is people work their way around the government, rather than 
deal with the realities of our politics. They rail against them and they essentially opt out. They move, they either move to where there's better governance and jobs. So that's why you see so much semigration in the country for those who can and those who can afford it and those who can find work. Yeah. But people also make themselves ANC proof or government proof. <laughs> so they try and privatize their services wherever possible. And what this is about is about sort of reinstating that democratic choice as in terms of what voters are, are, um, have within their own power, as I say, making them not spectators in a wider theater that somebody else is running, but actually putting them at the center, making them central characters. And, and that's what we've essentially tried to do in this book is to, is to go back to those fantastic scenarios produced by people like Clem Sunter and others mm. in the late 1980s, which helped to give South Africans a sense of, of direction as to where they might go, how their choice might make a difference. Uh, so this is a process fundamentally about empowerment. I think one of the problems that we also have in this country, and, and gentlemen, feel free to, to tell me I'm, I'm losing my mind here, but is that we've lost the imagination to envisage a country which could work. We've almost been browbeaten and shown how awful everything is to the extent that we've now stopped believing in all of the possible good scenarios. So I'm glad that that's right up front. And perhaps we could start with that one and we will slowly over the course of this hour uh, <laughs> disabuse people of all the good and positive notions and we'll give them the worst possible outcome. But let's start with the good stuff because Jack's been spending the last week going around to shopping malls, taxi mm. ranks, places where young people congregate to address exactly what it is and to ask these young people what Greg just spoke about, the, the, the lack of participation here. You know yeah. I mean, what Greg was saying is true, right? Very true. And <clears throat> what is surprising uh, to me, particularly when, when we hit the road, was the fact that um, it's not that people are completely disengaged. A lot of us are not completely educated as to where to take our thoughts, ideas, suggestions, all of that stuff. So it's not that people have this... Uh, they don't want to be involved in politics or in, in the running of our day-to-day -day lives. They actually want to bring about that change. But a lot of people just don't know where to start. So if I could ask, it, what, what, what would be some of the good things, as, as Gareth mentioned? Yeah, what, what's the, I mean, what's the good, best case scenario, and, according what, to your what, book? And I do encourage people to buy the book, by the way. We're not going to sure. make this easy for you, but... I do think if, if Greg and, and Ray can just give us some ideas of what the good might be, then mm. it'll give us a starting point, as, as Jack puts it. Yeah, well, let, let me pick that one up. Um, I think the good is, is unfolding but not seen. Um, and that is the gathering of a political center in the country, which mm -hmm. has started to happen. So, I mean, to understand South Africa, you've got to, you've got to get the, the fact that since 1948, we've been ruled by two parties. It's ridiculous. Mm. Two dominant parties that have owned the elections and have, had the, have been able to do whatever they want, um, the National Party and the ANC. So there is quite a deep psychological thing that results from that is that there is no South African experience of competitive democracy. Okay, there is no, mm. there's nothing to look back on and say, well, when we changed governments, you know, back in 99, 
that's what happened and now we're going to make an informed choice because we can see the advantages or disadvantages of doing that. So there is no template for where we are now where the ANC is falling below 50% and for the first time the country is going to have to let go yeah. of the idea of, of big daddy mm. and, and, and actually stand up and, and, and be an adult kind of um, country where there's real competition. So a lot of people are unable to see their way out of that. They, they cling to the idea of having a, a dominant state despite all of its faults and failings. And, and so you have this very peculiar situation where we do a survey which shows that uh, uh, if you ask people what's the best governed province, they say the Western Cape, mm-hmm. okay, In, including people from other provinces. And if you say which party governs South Africa best, 30% say the DA and 30% say the ANC. So if you look at the spread based on election outcomes, a lot of ANC people are saying the DA governs best. <laughs> but people are clinging on to they – can't, they can't let go of this uh, uh, relationship that they have with this dominant party. But the temptation then is to say, well, these people are stupid and uh, maybe we shouldn't have a universal franchise because if people can't even – if they'll say and, and understand how good government could work, the good case scenario, uh, but they are, they're voting against their own best interests. I mean, you see this even in America. You know, you've got Republicans who vote sometimes against their own interests and Democrats who do the same. And these are supposedly uh, smart people in the first world, in, in, in the world's last remaining superpower. So it's not just here in South Africa, but dumb and democracy do sometimes go together. Yeah, I mean, I think that you've got to also see that there is, however, a transition underway. So I think that the expectation that there would be some kind of lightning shift. You yeah, know, because um, we, everything we want these days is to but if you look, immediately. Yeah. You know, uh, if you go back 10, 15 years... Um, you know, the Western Cape was under ANC control. That's right. If you look at this election, we're expecting maybe Gauteng, Western Cape, maybe KwaZulu-Natal. Some people are saying Free State. All of these places could fall under uh, competitive coalition or other party governments. So that's, that's a sign that there's a shift happening. It's just not happening at the pace which people would like to see, you know, there's, it's a very undramatic thing. It happens right. over a successive number of elections. So, the, you know, the fact that the capital city of South Africa, both the capital cities of South Africa, are actually run by opposition. It's, um, a, it's a healthy sign. So we're on the road to something positive, and the question is how far will we go in this election? All right, but but Greg, I also get the idea from from Ray's tone on this that your good scenario isn't like rainbows and unicorns. Uh, the, the the good scenario is let let's <laughs> let's have the most positive possible outcome here. Let's try to predict a future where you know the stars align and and things go well. But it's not certainly not going to solve all of our problems. What do you think the main touch points of such a positive outcome might be for the average citizen? What what would make it worth people going to the polls and voting for this good scenario? 
Yeah, let me. I'll come back to that in a second, if I may, Gareth. Uh, I just want to touch on something that Jack said earlier, and 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 Ray has also uh, briefly mentioned, and that is about whether change is possible and how long change takes. And one of the great pleasures in my job is being able to travel uh, and being able to meet people who were at the centre of momentous political change. Mm. And I recently spent time in Lithuania and uh, met a 90-year-old gentleman, uh, Professor Landsbergis, who was the man who essentially, without putting uh, too much drama around it, was the man who brought down the Soviet Union because he refused Gorbachev's overtures in the early 1990s to, to, to stay within the Union uh, and took Lithuania out of it, and in so doing basically sort of undid the whole shaky edifice. And he's a wonderfully quiet, thoughtful, chess-playing, piano-playing academic. Mm. Uh, shows that academics are useful for something. And um, uh, he's a man who most unlikely was a man of some resolve, uh, but who made the right sets of decisions. And I, I think it's just a lesson, again, that we're not sort of bit players in somebody else's wider drama. We are actually at the center. And politicians like to make us believe that they're the ones who are going to save us, rescue us, deliver us from evil. But it's actually ourselves that have to do that. Uh, the most unlikely people are going to have to step up to the plate. And there's a very sad axiom in our line of work, which is that the period of recovery is at least as long as the period of decline. So one of the, the features I think we've had of, of government in South Africa is it takes, it takes a very long time to get things right. Uh, building countries is about assiduous investment over very long periods of time, which gradually sort of compounds into a, into, into a remarkable story. But you've got to start somewhere, and it takes a long time if you've been in the process of descent to get yourself out of that. And South Africa, unfortunately, has, has got itself in a fairly long-term dive. We're busy nosing over, perhaps even further, given the sort of radicalization of our politics, at least in the foreign domain. But mm. it's going to take a long while to get it out of it. But there are these stories of, and they, they threw out this book, of how individuals made a difference, whether they be sort of small people or big people, they nonetheless made a difference. And that it's that process, again, of empowerment, which is crucial. But to your exact question on the good, well, the good is where you have more effective government and a stronger economy. If you're looking at this in the sort of matrix terms, um, you, you, the good is where you have uh, a multi-party coalition that functions. This could be a coalition of the center, uh, that you have the ANC aligning with centrist parties. Our surveys, and we've done two, we're about to do a third survey countrywide, uh, and these are very carefully you know, uh, uh, weighted and representative surveys, um, show that nearly 80% of South Africans favor a coalition outcome. And I think that is because uh, the alternative, again, uh, um, is, is worse, and also because people can't perhaps bring themselves entirely to break away from the ANC for the reasons that Ray has suggested. But the good scenarios where reforms are fundamentally identified and implemented, I think we're not only world champions at rugby, 
uh, and in the UFC, in the middleweight division, Drickus. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're also world champions at, at, at laying out plans and never getting them done. Mm. We have this succession of, of, of wonderful acronyms, which look fantastic. Uh, and the, the presidents of various presidents roll them out on a routine basis, but we never get them done. So sort of matching execution capability and political will with the ideas is crucial in the good scenario. And of course, that then drives the retention of skills, private investment. You have what we've had all along, which is sound fiscal policy and monetary management. That continues. And then we, we, we tweak systems around economic empowerment. We have a BE that delivers not to the rich, but to the poor, uh, that we have a merit-based public service, um, and that our cities become poles of growth rather than these sunken morasses, uh, which, we're, which, which we are all too familiar with now. Um, uh, and then we focus our foreign policy finally on, on our region. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about what we're going to do in the foreign domain. But the critical element that drives, should be driving our foreign policy, at least in the regional sense, is improving, expediting the flow of goods and services and people. When we talk about expediting the flow of goods and services and people, we talk about trade summits and, and tariffs. We don't actually talk about the border posts, which are the single biggest impediment and all the, the officialdom that goes with that. So those are the type of things in that good scenario, but it's founded fundamentally on a different political outcome, and that's a political outcome and which is coalition-based around the centre. And I think uh, before we get to the bad and the ugly, I think it's worth pausing and reflecting because we have tried some things in this country which have poisoned the well. And, and I think it's also worth reflecting on the things in South Africa that have not worked and the ideologies that have contributed to us becoming a poor country and contributed to the unemployment that we're facing and to the enormous social welfare system that has grown out under us, which is unsustainable. Uh, everybody except the president seems to to know and understand that. But there's, there's an ideology at the heart of the ANC which has been rotten and which has been supported by far too many sensible people for far too long. Um, do you think it's worth at least South Africa stopping, taking note of that and not making the same mistake again? Ray, do you yeah, want to try yeah, that yeah. one? Yeah, no, I think, I think absolutely. I mean, I think that there is a record of, um, as Greg has said, these great policies and then they never implemented. And the question is why? And also terrible policies that were implemented. Yeah. You know. I mean, there have been some bad policies as well. They're trying with the NHI now. Yeah. Expropriation without compensation. Just, you know, generally having no idea how to run the economy since uh, Trevor Manuel, Tito Moweni and Thabo Mbeki were running things. Yeah. Now, I think it's one of the advantages of an incompetent uh, ANC is that they haven't been able to pull off that... Uh, expropriation without compensation. Mm -hmm. um, but God. I mean, I think the, the, the poor policy, uh, you know, implementation, and the question is why? And I think, I mean, I have a rule of thumb, which is the rule of rent. If there's no rent in it for the ruling party and its elite, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So that under, I, I, I sort of underlies the unwillingness to allow private partnerships into government. Because if you bring in private energy generation, 
you know, they're going to be efficient. They're going to be competitive. They're going to mm-hmm. be, they're going to have margins to meet. They're listed companies. Mm-hmm. They will report on their financials. So suddenly you're in a scenario where you're going to be a spectator watching someone do something rather than rolling up your sleeves and getting into the coffers, to put it bluntly, of that yeah. institution. So when you know, so, so therefore the private sector gets kept out of development and growth. Um, it should be the rail thing should have been long solved. There are many models across the world where you have private concessions of rail, private port concessions that work, and these logistical things happen. That doesn't mean ceding sovereignty, uh, as you know, is sometimes given as the excuse. It means mobilizing the capital to make these big infrastructure things work. And the same is true of power generation. So the unwillingness to do that derives from the ANC being an entirely rent-based kind of uh, distribute. And they've still got a love affair with socialism, for God's sake. Yeah, Which is strange, know, uh, right? Yeah, I think it's it's there as window dressing. Um because I think they're action. true believers. I mean, there are, uh, you know, the, the National Democratic Revolution, which they never stop talking about when, when they gather in, in, in NEC meetings and things. That's always at the center yeah. of the agenda. And, and we're not taking them seriously. They, some of them mean it. Yeah, but, uh, but, but I, don't, uh, I don't entirely buy that because they're all in business. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So they're all in, they're all in, in various the businesses. Business of rent-seeking, as you um, put it. Which and when they're in those businesses, they want those businesses to be profitable as possible to distribute, uh, you know, the gains. So it's it to me to my mind, it's a kind of like ideological window dressing to pretend really to the mass of the people that they actually are uh, busy with this socialist project. You know, um, <clears throat> a little earlier on, you guys uh, mentioned that you do these surveys and. You know, the entire time I've been wondering to myself, like a democratic republic is made up of people that are essentially of the people, by the people, for the people, right? And as South Africans, we kind of seem somehow disconnected between ourselves and the ruling class or the governing class, excuse me. It seems as if there's some sort of disconnect with uh, how we think of ourselves and the ruling uh, ruling elites, if we can call it that way. Are we somehow separated? Have we separated the fact that these people actually come from us as everyday human beings? Is, is, are, are they- They've separated themselves out because they don't know about the price of bread and traffic and uh, security concerns. They We're paying for all of that for them and- they live these uh, these lives of, of of distance from the rest of us. I think that's a good point. I mean, maybe that's also why there's such a, a an apathy among ordinary people because they see these guys living in the ivory towers and they think, well, we don't. They live, like live completely different I, lives from us. Greg, I, I think I think that uh, I mean, Jack, you've 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 put your finger on something. Um, I mean, in a part, and I love the the image of of the sort of. Um, Socialist NEC arriving in a fleet of Trabants, uh, <laughs> wearing East German woolen wear, mm. uh, with the latest cut and fashion. 
uh, I just don't see Fakila and Balula looking quite like that, or or, or exchanging his official wheels for that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's you know it's Gucci socialism, it's um, it's it's playing to the the crowds in a particular way, trying to prove the ANC's radical credentials at the same time that they they are essentially uh, making money for themselves uh, in a fairly obscene way in many instances. Uh, and with their cohorts, but why? Why is it? And it's a curious question. You know, we all know that things happen for reasons. We also know that things don't happen for reasons. So, so when and and, and people are not fools. So, why is it that people continue to vote in a particular way? Why is it that people um, sort of ignore the evidence of, let's say, the relatively well-run, as Ray has pointed out? Western Cape, for instance, and <clears throat> still vote for the ANC. And it, and it happens in the Western Cape, where I am sitting currently. You know, some of the, the areas where the most money has been spent on service delivery, the most money has been spent on security uh, in Yanga and Guguletu, for example, there are still vast majority of people vote for the ANC. So the answer to this is, I think, fundamentally in our history, of course, uh, identity politics runs very deep in South Africa. And, of course, politicians like to rake that all the time. Uh, and people are, unfortunately, play that game. I think it's to do in a related sense with trust and the absence of trust. And so when, when, when the ANC stands up and says the DA is going to bring back apartheid and it's going to take away social grants, none of which is true, um, you know, there's a fear that this is going to happen, uh, even though the ANC hasn't been able to deliver what people anticipated. Um, uh, there's also, of course, a sort of degree of celebrationism. Um, people like to think back to 1994. Of course, that's becoming an increasingly distant memory. It's only people of, of our age cohort and, and older who kind of remember that. Uh, moment. Uh, it's celebrated, but it's now a distant memory for most people. It's a whole more than a generation ago. So, so you know, why is it that people don't join the dots? Uh, why is it that people are not willing to break out? And I think some of that answer, and I'll be curious to see what Ray has to say about this and yourselves, is, is because opposition parties don't present themselves in a way that makes it easy to do so. So, you know, it, it, it's also about, it's not just about convincing the, the voter on the facts, it's also about convincing the voter in a way that makes it easy for you to, to put your cross there, um, that you feel that you're not only safe and you, you know what the record is, um, but that you, there's this element of trust. Uh, and how does an opposition party go about establishing an element of trust after such a vicious, uh, horrid history that South Africa has had? And I think that's the central question for oppositions. It's not just all about the ANC. It's also about what opposition parties do. And, you know, just to echo your sentiments, I think that is something that I've picked up on, uh, especially in like the recent two weeks or so, uh, having spoken to a lot of people on the ground. It's the fact that we all can agree that we need better governance. Unfortunately, the opposition parties have not done a good job at all of letting us know concisely what, what is it is what they want to do. What does a good job look like? Because they, unless they've been in government, they can't prove anything through their actions. 
I mean, the EFF's a perfect example. They don't actually run a single ward in the country, right? So you can't really judge them on their merits. I, I, All you can do is judge them on their rhetoric. And in that case, I mean, I give Julius 10 out of 10 for his rhetoric. I happen to disagree with most of it, but he's doing a good job of selling his message. Sure, I, I, what would you like to see them do? How do they I, prove this? Like for argument's sake, um, the, the person that pops to mind right now is an overseas individual, but Vivek Ramaswamy, for argument's okay. sake. He's got a trick record in business. He can show up and say, I know how to put together an idea, put people together, work towards one goal, and actually make it happen. But he, he, we also had Cyril who told us he was in business. No, but we've, we've uh, so seen how, his track how well record. How he done? We've yeah. seen his track record in business. It's not that great. All I'm saying is, if, for argument's sake, John Steenhazen, I'm, I'm not too sure about uh, his uh, political victories and all of that stuff, but if he could communicate to the country just how I, well he has I, I done think, think in his position, you know, perhaps no, I, we again, change our minds. This is us being, you, Ray and Greg have both spoken at length this morning about how well the Western Cape is being run. That's all I need. I, I don't need a whole lot more. If, if the Freedom Front or the EFF or the Mkwanto Asizwe Party run a place well, that's all I want to see. Sure. I'm not looking for a whole lot more. Well, who are these people who constantly need to be coddled and looked after and sold messages and given T-shirts and told that everything's going to be sunny and fantastic if you vote for them? What do South Africans want? It's childish, for God's sake. I mean, Ray, do you want to add yeah. to what Greg had to say? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I would say that what, what maybe the opposition could do better is to present a simple, coherent vision of how they will take us out of this mess. This multi-party at, charter tried at a national. To do that. Did they try to do that? They are doing that. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, you know, but but the message hasn't been very loud and clear, and maybe that's going to start picking up as we get towards the election. But somebody who would, you know, that you would say, right now, I can see how we get from where we are to where we want to be, mm. and it's not all, you know. I mean, to focus on bashing the ANC and the ANC has failed and is corrupt and and so on really is I don't think there's anybody, not even in the ANC, who doesn't agree. Okay. So that's kind of a wasted uh, energy, wasted bandwidth. Mm. Rather get on to when we get into office, this is how we're going to do things. Um, I mean, what's going to happen on day one? Are the, you know, is there a cohort of directors general with uh, merit, technocratic merit, mm. that are ready and waiting to move into these government departments and shake things up? Somebody it, tell me that. So that's show, a, that's show a, me those people. So we had Greg. Uh, it's Greg. We had uh, Gaten McKenzie on last Thursday, and he said, in an in an, a completely clear and 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 qualified way, that he would not even bother with political appointments if you could find people who were better in a specific portfolio and who had the technical and merit background to be able to run things better. He said, you know, Ministry of uh, whatever, tourism, he'd find someone who was the best at that. If it was the Ministry of, 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 of Medicine, he'd find someone who was the, who was the best at that, um, which is interesting and refreshing, but that's not the kind of stuff that we hear from the three big parties. Because we know that they'd all put politicians in the positions. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's there are political appointments and there always will be, for example, in the cabinet. What's more critical to me is the technocrats in, you know, who's the director? As you say, the director's general. Mm. So who's running Kusile Power Station? I don't happen to know. It may be a very good person who's undermined by uh, bad circumstances or whatever, but you, you can't really make a compromise there. Yeah. There you have to have someone who understands engineering, who understands science, and who can run a large, complex organization. Okay, that narrows it down. I mean, there are not a lot of people like that out there. That person has to run that, that power station. Then they have to be backed up and allowed to make the appointments necessary to make that power station work. And that includes we need coal that's of a certain standard and this contract has to go. But all of this is riddled with catered deployment crooks who are so deep in the corruption that to, to weed them out is going to take not only a huge amount of political will, but some aggression and some force. And I wonder who among our opposition, to agree mm. with all of you on this point, who among them has the spine to take these guys on, right? I mean, we don't see a lot of that. We've got to have some politics with bite again instead of just bark. Because I think that's the opportunity that they are missing at this point in time. We've got 30 years of the ANC uh, being the governing party, there's evidence all over us. We can point to as we can point to so many different things that have fallen apart. But there's not, in my point of view, there isn't enough of problem-solving communication coming from political parties. In in as as Ray suggests, like this is the person we're going to put in at the head of ESCOM. And this is the reason why, because this person's got, is an engineer and knows exactly what they're doing. Uh, this is the person we are going to put as minister of education. They've got 20 years in the, in, in the education field. They understand what works and what doesn't. No one is saying that. Instead, we're all pointing our fingers in the same direction saying that's bad. I think we all know that. I, I agree. I just want to have one last thing to say about this, and that is that we've, we've seen what performative politics does mm -hmm. all over the world. We've seen a whole lot of people rise to leadership positions who are really performing the role of a leader instead of being a leader. And I would prefer to see actions rather than words at this point. So I don't care about the messaging and the communications and what suit they're wearing, how, what color their tie is, mm. any of that 90s and 2000s Tony Blair nonsense. I think people want to see activity. They want to see people who can make things happen. They want to see drive and determination and more importantly, results. Yeah. Which brings us back to the book. Uh, what is the bad scenario, gentlemen? What, what, what <laughs> Ray, you can start us okay. off here. What's the, what's the bad and, and save some space for the ugly people? Yeah, I mean, I think the bad scenario is very clear and very alarming. That is the ANC drops below 50%, enters into a coalition with the EFF, the EFF drives a hard bargain, as they've already indicated they will, and they take some. They're insisting, for example, on a senior uh, position in finance and the deputy presidency. Um, once the, you know, the, the way that the EFF operates, it would be a reverse takeover of the ANC because yep. uh, Malema will simply outcompete them politically from within, dominate the messaging from government, um, cause a lot of uh, alarm and despondency, to use the old, uh, 
I think it's illegal in, in Zimbabwe to cause alarm and despondency. <laughs> and that covers quite a lot of things. Um, so, and then you would have you would have the classic scenario, the Venezuela scenario, the Zimbabwe scenario. I mean, the EFF openly admires Venezuela. Yeah. So we have a flight of capital, a collapsing currency, inflation through the roof, um, jobs already we're we're at a catastrophic level, mm-hmm. just disappearing, and industrial base, and the mining sector collapsing. But they'll and, they'll nationalize the mines and the banks, and then we'll all have money. Yeah, that's the message they're selling people. Julius was out this weekend. I'm sure you all saw, saying to people, "Look, don't worry about this 350 rand grant. The ANC says we'll take away as the EFF. We'll keep the 350. Plus, if you have a matric, we'll give you 2,000. Mm-hmm. And if you have a university degree, we'll give you 6,000. Forget the fact that Julius is inversely." Uh, ch- turning the pyramid here uh, on on poor people, the ones who don't have degrees and don't have matric, probably the ones who need the help the most. But according to him, no, we'll reward you as you climb up the education ladder, hoping that that's enough to keep you at bay. Yeah, I mean it's just fantasy. I mean it's just it's kind just of made up, yeah. bizarre, really, that that anyone would take that seriously because the state gets its money from somewhere. Taxes are going to diminish under this regime at quite a rapid rate. They're going to have to borrow. The lenders are going to be skeptical. The, the rate at which we're going to borrow is going to go through the roof. It's just, so you might get your 2,000 Rand, but it might be worth $1 mm-hmm. um, because of the, the collapsing economy. So that's a pretty, it's a pretty grim picture. There are people in the ANC who I think uh, believe that they can manage a scenario with the EFF um, Paul Mashatile. You're right. Others. You're right. But, uh, they'll be managed right out of it. Julius is wilier than they are. I think so. <laughs> I mean, and they'll either have to split up the government shortly after it starts or else just go along with that momentum. And, uh, and both of those scenarios are pretty bad. Uh, mm-hmm. Greg, do you want to add anything to the, the bad scenario before we go to the ugly? Yeah, I think uh, I would just say, caution uh, again from years of bitter experience of spending most of it in conflict-ridden societies, is that once you get into that scenario, it's very hard to get out. Mm. And the damage happens very quickly, uh, and government sort of starts devouring itself, whether this be Venezuela or indeed in Zimbabwe. Uh, and I think the other feature of this is is that it's remarkable how, how much meat there is to be found on the bone. And you can gnaw away for a very long time and still remain in power, um, uh, even though the vast majority of your people are in in poverty, destitute, uh, as in the case of Zimbabwe. Um, they may have indeed left, as in Zimbabwe and in Venezuela, but you still hang in there mm. because you control the one or two critical levers of Forex uh, and you control a, a sufficiently large chunk of the economy and thus public service that keeps you there, and particularly the security services, which is really the lesson from from both those examples. So it's not a quick in and out. If we tip over into that scenario, uh, you're going to see a significant exodus of of capital and of interest in South Africa, um, and we will be in for a very long, I think, unfortunately, and quite terrifying ride. Can I just go back to something else that you, you mentioned earlier, which is you know what? It, what should what should politicians be saying and doing mm. that people are interested in? 
And I think that we, we overcomplicate this. I think our, our, our surveys, at least, and, and we can only do this as best as we can in this regard, show that people are really interested in four things. They're interested primarily in unemployment. That's the majority concern. Uh, they're secondly uh, concerned about corruption and the impunity that goes with it. They're thirdly concerned about load shedding. Of course, that's slightly variable because the government can always play around with that and you know turn the diesel generators on just before the election and make make it seem as if it will you know will uh, would have disappeared at least temporarily at great cost. And and fourthly, they're concerned about crime. So so any opposition party has to focus on those, I believe, those three areas because they have the greatest resonance. And there's always a danger here of, of parties confusing sort of um, their own beliefs uh, with what people want. So in terms of, of, you know, trying to improve governance, for instance, we get involved in discussions about cadre deployment and how to instill a meritocratic-based civil service and all that which is fine, but it's not actually what people really want to hear. What people want to hear is where the job's going to come from, how are we going to deal with corruption and impunity and the, the legacy of state capture and the rent-seeking that Ray has referred to that continues today, and how are we going to be safe, how are our kids going to be safe. And, and, the, and, and to do all of that, you need, of course, have governance. Uh, and actually, the government puts out the best indicator of governance countrywide, perhaps unwittingly, in its audited statements of, of each of the, of the municipalities and that 40-odd municipalities of nearly 260 get clean audits is an indicator of the state of governance. So uh -huh. we know exactly what to do. We just don't hold politicians to this. Uh, and, and the politicians, of course, are ducking and diving and avoiding this and promising all sorts of things. And again, I come back to the point, it's up to the electorates to do this. The politicians are not going to hold themselves to account. The electorate has to hold them to account. Um, thank you for bringing this in, Ray. Uh, Ray brought your other book in, which is worth mentioning, uh, Rich State, Poor State, Why Some Countries Succeed and Others Fail. And perhaps at some stage in the next couple of weeks, we can also talk to you about this book, Greg, because I think it would be interesting to compare ourselves with uh, states that have done well in the world and states that have done poorly because there are a plethora of choices on both of those fronts. So I think it would be interesting to delve into, into some of those. But Ray, let's look at the ugly scenario and then we can talk a little right. more generally. But what, what's, what's ugly? I mean, bad sounds horrible enough. Mm. Ugly, okay, we're, we're living in ugly right now. So ugly, I think in this next election, the ANC comes in slightly over 50% and carries on. And essentially, it's a, a slower decline than the bad scenario. Okay. But ultimately, over a slightly longer period, you end up in the same place. Right. So it's just the deterioration of governance, the delivery failing, less water, less electricity, Fewer jobs, um, because the 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 ANC has shown itself unable to turn these things around, and it's very hard to imagine that they will suddenly find a way after this year's election to do what they haven't done for thirty years. So the ugly scenario is, it's almost the sort of you know, it's the frog boiling in the 
in the pot scenario. So. The water's already getting quite hot. Nobody's <laughs> noticed how hot. Well, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the frogs <laughs> have jumped out, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, There's quite mid, a few frogs middle, sitting in there, though. Middle-class black and white people are trying to find ways to get their children to go overseas, which mm-hmm. is usually a sign that that water's getting warm. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think that, that that's just the malaise that we're in. Um, okay. And that carrying on, it would almost be better to just go full populist and get this over oh, with. Jesus. So that we, yeah, I, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's almost, um, it's demoralizing yeah, to carry on like this. And I think that, I mean, the, 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 the downside, the, the, the worrying thing about the ugly scenario is that you're going to start seeing uh, the undermining of independent institutions, the ones that are standing in the way of possible future governance. And I would worry, for example, about the IEC and the election that follows. Um, you know, things like that I think we have to be very vigilant about uh, because in the templates there in other countries you see eventually it goes to undermining the election outcomes. Um, and South Africa has a very robust – let me just put it on the record. I mean I think we have a very robust, effective electoral, electoral system but maybe we're complacent and we take it for granted. Um, so do we all know who the chair of the IEC is and – what the CV is? Well, actually, last week we had two people in here from the IEC who were very uh, – I, I certainly felt better after hearing what right. they had to say. Mm-hmm. Very competent guys, James Apane. And Matsoba. And Matsoba. They're, they're both in charge of various aspects. Yes. Matsoba in charge of party spending, mm. party funding, um, and, and he knows what he's talking about and, and really spoke very frankly about what they can do if parties don't follow the rules and how the parties have tried in the past to do this. Um, and, and James giving us very straightforward approach to how elections are run, mm. uh, how much of it is organizational and logistic, how technology has come to, to, to bear in, in, in these things and how it's, it's made a positive impact. It seems to me like we're in pretty good hands at the moment. Yeah. So uh, that, I, I that, don't that know if we, I've just been bamboozled, that, but it, that it felt to me to, like they, were, they knew what they were talking about. We have to protect that. We have to be vigilant. I, I, yeah. yeah. Greg? I think that uh, that uh, President Ramaphosa's citing, and this has been subsequently said by several ANC people, of the possibility of external uh, intervention in the elections is a bit of a warning sign. Mm. As soon as you start claiming that some force is out there trying to do you in, yeah. and in this instance on account of the ICJ case, uh, it's of course an excuse to start meddling yourself. Uh, and I'm not sure whether we've been set up for a declaration that this was not a free and fair election, uh, in spite of the professionalism of the IEC, or whether the government is uh, um, is, is sort of uh, trying to undo the uh, institutional integrity of the organisation to be able to play its own games. But that may be the first warning sign. There is a fourth scenario uh, in all of this, which is we also deal with in the book, which is our kind of PS scenario, which in the, in the good cowboy theme is, is a fistful of sense. Um, and that's a scenario also not dissimilar to one that we experience countrywide, but at a lower level of governance, where you have pockets of, of excellence. Um, you, you still may have an overall narrow ANC victory, 
but but you have most municipalities uh, um, failing, uh, some provinces, some municipalities succeeding. Um, uh, but did you have this environment of rising corruption where the rich get richer, the poor get poorer? Um, and you may have the devolution of some powers, but overall you have a very pockmarked South Africa emerging, particularly between urban and rural areas and within the urban scape as well, yeah. where you have parts which simply don't get services. Um, uh, but the, I say not dissimilar to where we are currently, um, but also under the broader rubric of, a, of an ANC victory. Uh, Greg Anray, you, you went to a lot of trouble to speak to many people who are well acquainted with the political conditions, the, 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 the way that voters have behaved in previous elections, lots of research that went into this too. But the people you spoke to, who, who were they and, and who had interesting insights that you hadn't thought of so far? Because the two of you very well versed in all of this stuff. There can't have been too many surprises. And you, you posit the scenarios to us, but were there people who really threw curveballs at you and said, you know, people you respect and people you interviewed for the purposes of this book, who said things to you that you hadn't really factored in? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we had a consultative process. Um, it took quite a few iterations to get where we were with the original scenarios. And then from that, we wrote the book. So it was very interesting dealing with Rolf Mayer. Mm. He uh, writes the forward, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, because he's a you know he's a kind of really a an amazing figure in South African history. To be honest, I mean he is the person who really made the difference and made it possible for there to be a a, a, a peaceful transition. Um, and from led the led the, the the Kadesa meetings. Yeah, and I think his concern about you know how. Uh, the constitutional order and the the constitutionalism um, is something that's very real and very difficult for a lot of people to really care about. But it's so important, uh, you know, that we made the rules of the game and we've got to be very vigilant about how those rules are maintained, especially independent judiciary, independent institutions, accountability, transparency by government and so on. Um, so it was very interesting interacting with him. And I think Greg had some interaction with the, the, the sort of master of all South African scenarios, which was Clem Sunter. Maybe you could yeah. talk Greg? about that. Yeah, no, that's a little like uh, playing guitar with Bob Dylan, you know. You, um, <laughs> uh, not that I've done that, but that's how I imagine it to be. I mean, Clem is an incredible resource, and so happy to share his his background and his knowledge and experiences. Um, and you know, it helped us methodologically because scenarios are not just about plucking ideas out of nowhere. You've got to have some assumptions about the future, uh, some some fundamental kind of laws or rules in terms of, you know, about coalitions, about uh, the relationship between investment and growth, about uh, w what sort of civil service you have and the expectations of getting out of it. Uh, you, you've got to have some, it's got to be grounded in reality. So, so Clem was very good in providing that methodological outline. I think overall, having a group, when you write such a um, set of scenarios, is very useful because people check you all the time. 
Um, you know, fortunately, it's not the public domain, so there's no, you don't have to deal with all the celebrationists and virtue signalers, um, which gets rather tiresome. Um, but yeah. what was very helpful was the, the, the continual reminder of not confusing goals, ends, ways, uh, the how, uh, and the means, the the, the 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 separation of of resources and a timeline um, in these processes, and I think that's often the failure in any strategic process, which scenarios are part of, is people say we're going to do this with no idea about how is they're going to do that, uh, and that's one of course the big mistakes of the South African government, which has been a statement of what it wants to achieve but with no sense of how it's going to do that and the difficult choices that lie behind that. And that, in fact, is a great metaphor for this book because if government's about making difficult choices, about difficult choices of policy, of ideology, but also fundamentally of resources, people, money, etc., skills, um, the most difficult choice of all is who we choose to do that, and that's our choice. Uh, Jack, you want to ask anything uh, about these scenarios? Because I, th I think there's still plenty of questions here. Helpfully, you guys put in a, a, a chart here of, of, of a kind of four-way split that goes along two axes. Uh, most, more effective or less effective government and strong economy or weak economy. And there, there are obviously lots of other factors, but that's a helpful way of looking at things. Um, I'm going to ask something like... <laughs> Maybe I'm going to ask you guys to look into your crystal vase or crystal ball, I guess. If you were to, just from what you've gathered uh, uh, in, in putting this book together, if you had some sort of an indication, which direction are we headed in? Are hmm. we going in the good, the bad, or the ugly? <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the point about having the four scenarios and not picking one of them is that you can always retrospectively be... <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, you don't ruin yeah, it, Jack. I mean, I yeah. I, I, well, I mean, <laughs> just just to get a personal gauge of where they are. You get what I mean? You want you want the short yeah. and sweet answer. I mean, I, I I think that there is a big danger of the bad scenario. Mm. Um, I wouldn't have said so until uh, six months ago or so when senior ANC leaders started talking, like the deputy president and the Gauteng. Premier, etc., about how open they would be to working with the EFF. Mm. I think before that, uh, the ANC felt very, you know, rightly that they, they, you know, they wouldn't be able to handle such a relationship and that it would end up being. But there are there is this rising view within the party that that's uh, an option. When you wrote this, the MK party wasn't in existence either. Yeah, mm. which is an interesting. New yeah. development, yeah. 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 I mean, how, how does that change any of this, Ray? I think if you look at the MK party, I think that there are a couple of scenarios that could play out. I think in KwaZulu-Natal, um, it, it could end up in a king-making position, potentially, and that could lead to an ANC victory in, in, in coalition with the MK party in KwaZulu-Natal, maybe giving Zuma the premiership or something. Um so that's one possible scenario. I mean, who are they going to take votes from? Uh, they're probably going to hurt the EFF because mm. I think that a lot of ANC, RET types that, you know, left the party after Ace Machashule was chucked out 
probably drifted towards the EFF and maybe now they'll think, oh, well, you know, the colours are the same, so we'll drift <laughs> back to the Zuma, to the MK party. So I think it's a bit of shuffling of the deck chairs is what I'm saying. I don't yeah. think it really makes – I don't know if it's going to make a big national impact. Um, okay. But certainly KwaZulu-Natal becomes interesting with the MK party. Greg? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're quite firmly lodged in the kind of fistful of sense scenario. Um, uh, and the real question for me is, is how do we break out of it? And competitive party politics are part of the answer. They may be, in fact, be the key part of the answer because accountability and different infusion of skills and ideas, all of this is absolutely crucial. Um, and, and I think... We also have to be fairly realistic about how we get out of this and, and the sort of pathway up and, and over. Um, and I, th I, I think critical indicators are, are, are important. And I, I, would believe, I would believe that um, that how the opposition coalition does in KZN and in Gauteng is going to be a critical indicator for the next five years and beyond. So if we see a strong showing by the MPC, whichever parties it has under its overall skirt, is, you know, I think a, probably a positive sign that the province could go somewhere else. And ditto KwaZulu-Natal with all of the health warnings that Ray has provided, because, of course, it's a very uncertain and fluid political environment. How the smaller parties, Rizam, Zanzi, uh, um, included um, change uh, of Jardines, how they do is part of that. I don't see them making quite the inroads that they say they're going to, but then again, of course, all politicians will say they're going to change the world. I think the fundamental message for me is, is there's no miracles in politics. There's no Messiah. No one's going to change things overnight. And the history of the Western Cape is indicative of that. It takes a long time to turn the ship around, mm -hmm. but it can be turned around, and you've got to start that process by getting a different government in place. Well, um, I would suggest that you guys have done a lot of the legwork for us. I know mm -hmm. Jack wanted you to short circuit all your hard work and give him the the, the answer that would make it worth. <laughs> I had not to try. Not having to spend some time. I would encourage anybody to pour over this stuff. You've put a lot of information in here. There's mm -hmm. plenty of research. Stuff around murders, stuff around uh, the economy, unemployment, the welfare thing that we've got to come to grips with at some point, and plenty of comparative stuff too around things like what, we, what our score in mathematics and science are in terms of comparing us with other countries. And these are also a good indication of whether we're headed in a good a bad or an ugly direction. So I, I appreciate the work that you've done, and I, I encourage anybody to read your book. It is called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Scenarios for South Africa's Uncertain Future. It's by Greg Mills and by Ray Hartley, our guest this morning. Thank you both so much, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to have you here, and I hope yep. we'll hear a whole lot more from you as we head towards the election. Um, clearly, there's lots of interest. Do you think this is the most interesting and important election we've had since 94? Oh, yeah, by a long, by a long shot, yeah. You agree, Greg? Definitely. Absolutely. You agree, Jack? Yeah, yeah, yep. I hope so. Mm -hmm. I hope we're all excited for the right reasons. Yeah. Uh, let's hope it doesn't bite us on the other side of this. But thank you very much for joining us this morning. We will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. Uh, from all of the team here 
We will see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Cheers.